Well, good morning. Uh, today we are concluding our, our fall sermon series uh, entitled Always Ready. And um, Always Ready, if you, if you haven't been with us, this is your first Sunday, to allow me to give you a quick overview. Always Ready, the title comes from our theme verse, 1 Peter 3.15, where we were told as Christians to always be ready to give the reason for the hope within us. And, and in other words, our inner interactions with the people around us, when they ask us what we believe and why we believe it and why we do what we do and avoid certain things and choose to do certain things and, and why we have hope in Christ, we are to be ready, ready to give uh, a response to their questions or even their objections about the faith with biblical, compelling, personally owned and, and thought through relevant answers rooted always in God's truth, which is easier Uh, said than done sometimes, isn't it? Because there are some challenging questions out there. So far, for example, among other things, we've looked at the question of the existence of God. And we've looked at compelling evidence that points to the existence of God, looking at creation, science, scripture, human nature, and our own personal experiences. We've looked at the question of the problem of, of, of evil, in other words, the, uh, if God is good and he's almighty and he's loving, then why does pain and suffering and, and, and things like that, evil, exist in our world? Uh, we looked at the question of, of the scriptures. How can we know that scripture is, is reliable, that it's authoritative, uh, and it's truly God's word to the world? And we've covered a few other issues as well. But this morning we come to a particularly thorny, challenging, yes, maybe even troubling question. It's a question that I often see in print or hear on TV or the radio or am asked personally. And the question is this. What about the times in the the Old Testament where God tells his people to wipe out whole cities of people, men, women, children, even the livestock? How can you reconcile this with the assertion that God is loving, gracious, and good? Now, as Christians, we, we must not be afraid to look at difficult questions. We are to seek God's truth at all times, in all situations, with all people. And I believe that as we seek God's truth, as we seek God himself, for God himself is truth. When we find God, we find truth. When we find truth, we find God. We will most certainly grow in our knowledge of and understanding of God and his workings in this world, which is what we're trying to do this fall. I hope it's been helpful. But having said that, this is a difficult issue, and we can't cover everything in the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, there's a few aspects of it I would love to delve into more, but we don't have the time. So if you have questions uh, later in the week, text me or give me a call, and I'll do my best to try to work through them with you. So anyhow, in our passage from Joshua, we find that everybody in the city of Jericho, except for Rahab and her family, are destroyed. A little bit about Rahab. We can pick up some bits about her in the story. But the context is is that uh, the people of Israel were in slavery for hundreds of years in Egypt. And uh, they were miraculously freed. But before that, hundreds of years before that, God promised Abraham, the founder of the people of Israel, the father of the people of Israel, that one day his descendants would occupy the promised land. And if you remember, that's the area that Abraham came from before God called him out. And so after wandering in the desert for decades, Moses and now Joshua have led the people of Israel to the, the edge, the border of the promised land. And Jericho is standing between them and the promised land. It's a fortified city, a fort in a sense. And spies are sent ahead to check out the situation. And Rahab, a prostitute, we're told, gives those spies shelter and protects them from the 
the Jericho military who are seeking for them. And because of her actions, we're told in the passage that she and her family are spared when Jericho falls. So let's pick up the story in this question. So every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed it with a sword, with a sword, every living thing in it, men, women, children, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. And another passage in the Old Testament, we find something very similar. We see something happen when King Saul is told to decimate and destroy the Malachites. So what are we to make of stories like these? Let's look at a few of the questions that we might hear or might ask yourselves, and I'll try to give you some some possible answers, and and then we'll see where we end up. First, let's begin with the big one. Why did God command the masculine of the Canaanites? Well, as you look at the scriptures, hard as it is to maybe grasp, it was God's judgment on a culture that was utterly depraved by detestable religious practices. So it's, it's helpful for us to understand a little bit more about the Canaanites and what they believed and practiced. We're told in Deuteronomy 9.24, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Leviticus 18.24-25 says, Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And earlier in Leviticus 18, we see that the Canaanites practiced and were fully steeped in a religion that included child sacrifice, incest, bestiality, and cultic prostitution. So there was nothing redeemable, apparently, about the Canaanite culture. Secondly, it's helpful for us to understand God's purpose for his people. Uh, In the Old Testament, when God calls Abraham, he says this in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then throughout the whole book of Leviticus, over and over again, we hear this theme from God where he says, variations of this be holy for i the lord your god am holy and in first peter 2 9 we read of, about this description of who god's people are and what they're to be about but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation a people belonging to god that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light so god's purpose is that his people be different than the people around them, than the cultures around them. I mean, holy means set apart, consecrated for God's purposes. And God's people are called to be pure and to honor God with all they are and have. And they are to worship Him and Him alone. We are to be distinct and separate from the cultures around us, even the culture in which we grow up and live within. And so in Joshua, the people of Israel face a great threat, a potent danger which can keep them from fulfilling God's purposes for them. Why did God command the mass killing of the Canaanites? It seems, in part, it was founded in God's desire to preserve Israel from the religions of the Canaanites. Again, we look to Deuteronomy for some background here. God says, Otherwise they, the Canaanites, will teach you Israel to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. You know, one of the things you do when you study um, uh, religions, the history of religions, especially in the ancient world, but even today, is that when two cultures meet, often there is a, a mixing of religions and beliefs and values. It's called syncretism. Religious beliefs and practices from one culture are adopted by the other and vice versa, and eventually previous distinctions are lost. That was what God was trying to prevent. 
He warns the people of Israel over and over again in the Old Testament about this. And sadly, as we see time and again, despite God's warnings and actions to help prevent it, God's people begin to worship other gods, intermarry with people of, of, of radically different religious values and practices. And the nation of Israel inevitably begins to slide farther and farther into sin and rebellion against God. Now, just an aside for us, God's warnings to Israel are also words that we can certainly heed today. As it has always been a challenge for God's people to resist aspects of culture that pull us away from God and what his purposes are for us to do and to be. So it's always a good thing to step back and say, what are the values in our society and our culture that are contrary to God's will for me, contrary to God's will for us as a church? So you may ask next is, okay, that's all well and good, but did the Canaanites have a chance? I mean, you look in the Old Testament, you see examples of like Jonah and Nineveh. Remember the story? The city of Nineveh, a great city of 120,000 people, a very wicked place. And God says, Jonah, you need to go and preach repentance. Let them know I'm going to destroy them all unless they repent. Jonah resists at first, and then he has an interaction with this big fish. He decides, yeah, I think I will go. So he goes, you know, and he preaches. And what happens? The people of Nineveh repent, and they're spared. Their lives are saved. Why didn't God do that for the people of Canaan? Did they get a fair shot? Well, as we look at the Scripture, and we're going to look a little bit more into this, it's always good and difficult questions to look at all of Scripture, to pull in bits and pieces. You can't just pull it out. To pull it all together is, yes, because God was patient with the Canaanites. Let me explain. This was no spur-of-the-moment decision. God didn't give in to this impulsive rage and just order a mass killing. We see in Genesis 15 that God says this about the promised land. God says, Know for certain that your descendants, Israel, will be strangers in a country not their own, talking about Egypt, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve, Egypt, as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And then it gets into the part about the Canaanites. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, the promised land where Abraham was from. For the sin of the Amorites, also known as the Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. So we're going to dig a little bit more. But it seems that God gave the Canaanites 400 years to wake up and smell the coffee, so to speak. And yet they continue to slide farther and farther into sin. In fact, we are told in Joshua that the Canaanites had heard stories about God and his people and how God had brought them out of Egypt and, and, the, and the Red Sea and, and all that and, and, and miracles in the desert and how they had defeated all these powerful kings and, and, and armies. And they knew that, God's, that their, the God of Israel was greater than their gods. And yet, instead of Surrendering or repenting and choosing to serve the God of Israel, they persist in following their own gods and they continue in their depraved religious practices. You see, you can say a lot of things about God, but God is a God who is patient. God full of great patience. The Bible tells us the Lord is gracious and merciful, so to anger and full of mercy. In Ezekiel 18, God says this, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And of course, Jesus says of, his, of God his Father, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God is a God of great patience. He wants all to repent, all to be saved. And God gave the Canaanites 400 plus years. Another question about stories like this in Joshua 6 is, is God like schizophrenic? You know, did he go from an angry, vengeful God in the Old Testament to a kinder, gentler, more loving version of himself? Did God evolve, you know, in the New Testament? In other words, is God of the New Testament the same as the God of the Old? And I would say yes. As we look at Scripture, God is the same in both Testaments. Hebrews 13.18 asserts, or 13.8 asserts, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 tells us, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, God, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So when you look at the Old Testament and you look at the New Testament, what do you see? In the Old, God is holy, perfect, just, awesome in power. He judges all people and judges all things. He's the final arbiter. He is the judge. In the New Testament, He does the same. He is the same. In the Old Testament, we see God is gracious, loving, patient, kind, merciful, forgiving, our friend. In the New Testament, He is the same. You cannot read the Old Testament without a sense of God's profound care for the lost, the poor, the oppressed, the, the hurting, the orphaned, the grieving, the widowed, etc. He literally pleads with people throughout the Old Testament time and again for people to repent of their unjust ways that he might not judge them. So is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New? Yes, in a word. Now, for a little bit of perspective, there's other things I could, like I said, I could, I could get into, and so get a hold of me if you want to delve into those, but a little perspective. One of the things I've learned to do over the years when I struggle with certain aspects of, okay, what's God doing in this situation, or why is he doing this? If I can't wrap my mind around things, one of the things I first thing to do is I pray, I look at God's word, I study, I go deeper, but even then there are certain situations where, okay, I can't, you know, I still kind of, what's going on? And I've learned to remember this, is that God is God and I am not. God has proven himself faithful, good and loving over, over and over again to me and to countless others throughout history. And though we are to seek God, to understand him, to know his will, to obey his commands and the why behind it, if we had all the answers, where would that leave us? with no need for faith, with no chance to trust God and see him come through, with no motivation to go deeper and pursue him more, with no opportunity to trust him and learn to love him more. We, the Bible tells us, are saved by faith, right? Not by having all the answers. God in his wisdom has arranged things this way. And though it's okay to have questions and to struggle with those questions at times, it's just being honest. We must not let those struggles lead to cynicism or skepticism or, or unbelief. We are to walk by faith, not by sight. Now again, do not hear me wrong. This does not mean that we are to disengage our brains. God has given us the ability to learn and to be curious and to study and to grow in knowledge of our world, ourselves, and yes, even of God himself. Faith is not to be blind. But faith, by definition, means that there are some things that we will not or cannot know in this life. 
And I think God has designed it that way so that we can learn to trust Him, to love Him, and to follow Him. And so that we're not saved only by our intellect or lost by our lack thereof. And in stories like Joshua 6, we must be careful not to tell God what He should or shouldn't do. If God is God, then ultimately He can do whatever He wants. Because He's God and and we are not. Another passage that's helpful to me is from Isaiah 55, where God says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And you might hear that and say, yeah, but isn't that a little bit of a cop-out? Kind of like when a kid asks a parent, you know, no, just trust me. That's God's answer to tough questions. Trust me, I know best. Yes, that is God's answer to tough questions. And I do not believe it's a cop-out. Because take a look at these verses. Just before this, in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord, God says, while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the evil their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God and he will freely pardon. You see what's going on here? God is not emphasizing his judgment. He's not saying, you know, I can strike anybody down at any time and I don't have to justify it. Although God could say that and do that and he could be justified. He's God, we're not. Rather, what God is emphasizing here is his grace and his patience and his mercy. What God is saying, I'm always near, always wanting people to draw near to me, to know me, ready to forgive, ready to offer mercy, and I'll do it willingly and freely and out of love. And that even includes, God says, the wicked and the, quote, wicked and the evil. I can do what I want. I can forgive anybody, even if they don't deserve it. And if you think about it, that includes us. Because much as we don't like to admit it or think about it, we all deserve judgment. None of us deserve mercy. None of us have a claim to God's forgiveness. He does not treat us as we deserve. He showers us with love, compassion, mercy, and grace. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are beyond our limited perspective and understanding. He is God and we are not, and we should thank God for that. For we would have never come up with his plan. I mean, think about it. what we celebrate at the table is that God himself sent his son, Jesus Christ, to identify with us, to know our temptations, our failures, our weaknesses, to identify with us, to live a perfect life in every way, to be our sacrifice in our place, to be our high priest, to intercede for us, to raise, to be raised from the dead so that we do not have to stay dead after we die. We can live forever by faith in him. That is a part of God's ways and his thinking far beyond what we would have ever have come up on our own. And that's what we celebrate this morning at the table. That God in his wisdom and his love has made a way for us to know him. Because his desire is that none be lost. And that all have the offer of salvation. And then it's in our, in our, in our, our court. We simply are called then to trust and to believe, to seek him, to try to understand him. yes but to also come to a place of faith where even when our questions aren't completely answered satisfactorily, we can say, yes, you're God, I am not. I trust you, I love you, I give my life to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us and we thank you for your word and we thank you, God, that uh, 
that you are a God of, of mercy and patience. Uh, you're also a God of, of justice and perfection. And sometimes, Lord, it's hard for us to, to fully reconcile all those things in our minds because we are limited as human beings. And you are God and we are not. And yet, Lord, we have found you faithful in so many ways in so many times. And others have as well. And so, Lord, we, we choose to trust in you. We choose to serve you. And we choose, Lord, to, to be a part of your people, to be a light in the darkness, to be separate from the culture, but in the world, shining your light, loving others, pointing others to the grace that we ourselves have found in you, a gracious and loving Father. We offer ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the words of the Lord Jesus.